Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, before I introduce my guest, just some housekeeping things. Um, you can't donate to this podcast. We don't have a lot of sponsors. As I've been listening to other podcasts, which I don't do too much, I realize that the host spends a fair amount of time at the beginning of the podcast kind of plugging stuff. And we've tried to get straight to our guests and their story, because that's why you're listening. But if you're wondering what you can do to help, um, one of the things you can do is just go to iTunes um, and rate this podcast. You can leave a one to five star rating and you can leave a, a written and I read those and it really helps others connect. So thank you for the, those of you that have done that. And please, if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that. Um, now to introduce my guest, my guest is Jocelyn Fowler, who's joining us um, via Zoom from Durham, North Carolina. And she is going to talk about her journey with um, pretty severe emotional health and multiple different things. She is active LDS. Her and her husband are in Durham, North Carolina. He's in a residency program. Jocelyn is um, a BYUI student, um, taking that online, working towards a public health degree. And as I'm married, they have three, as I mentioned, they have three kids and are active in the church. A couple questions that we're going to answer in this survey, in this podcast, I guess I'm having some brain fog, is just kind of the coping skills that Jocelyn learned during her journey with um, emotional and mental illness, however she wants to frame that. And the second question, which is related to suicide, and this is a really good question that Jocelyn's going to answer during the podcast, um, how can I see value when I am suicidal? And you sort of are at that point where there's no light at the end of the tunnel and you don't see any value. So Jocelyn, I sense, has been there if she's willing to kind of address that question. Is that okay for an introduction, Jocelyn? That was perfect. Thank you. And um, Jocelyn and I said a prayer, and we just hope that you listeners, something here will resonate with you, maybe multiple things. Um, if you're in a dark spot or working through your own emotional health and or if you're a parent or a friend or a local leader, that some of the things Jocelyn says will give you more tools and insight to help those in your circle you're trying to help. Um, talk about, just way of kind of keeping this top view, talk about the different things you've worked through um, as under the umbrella of emotional health. What have I been like diagnosed with? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have a diagnosis, quite a few things. Um, I, at the beginning, I was diagnosed with severe depression, severe anxiety, severe obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and severe post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Um, for the PTSD, there's one more tier above that. So yeah, I got handed that all in one day in a small doctor's office. So, and I... And so that's what we're going to talk about. I think we'll hopefully get to all four of those that are part of Jocelyn's life and her road. And when she sent me an email, she kind of talked about the tipping point, how I crashed. And then the last part of her email is the healing in big, bold letters. So I think there's some light at the end of the tunnel that'll hopefully be helpful for our listeners. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you, Jocelyn, to start wherever you want to start. Okay. I'll start at the beginning of when things got really hard, which, you know, it's funny because I know many of us are always like wanting things to change in life, you know, and I got my change. It just wasn't the way I wanted it. 
So, um, my husband's last year of medical school, uh, we had my very last child, my youngest one, Eliza, and I got postpartum depression with her, which is pretty normal. About three weeks later, it was actually Valentine's morning of 2017. Um, my husband noticed, um, some purple around her nose. She was breathing just some purple. And, uh, we contacted our friend who was in his pediatric residency and he's like, Oh, you know, the clinic, the pediatric clinic is, is going to open in five minutes. Why don't you just go over there? And at some point between rushing into the clinic and trying to get in, cause we didn't have an appointment, she had stopped breathing. Wow. Um, yeah, my three week old baby. And I, when I saw her in my hands, I, I'm not going to go into too much detail. I thought for for sure I would be burying my child. And um, all of a sudden, the doctor storms through the, the room and she starts screaming, you know, call an ambulance, call an ambulance, get the oxygen. And, and I actually went into a reaction where, you know, that whole like floating outside of your body that, you know, that trauma reaction. And it was like, everything was really loud, but it seemed like everyone was going really slow, even though their face was like this look of hurry. Um, and then later that day she was intubated because her little body couldn't keep up with the, what was going on, which she had pneumonia and, uh, she came out of that though. Wow. No scars. Thankfully I got a lot of them, but she was fine young enough. So that happened. And then a few months later, we moved to Durham, North Carolina. Um, I grew up in Southern California, then moved to Texas, and then moved to North Carolina. So this is the other side of the country for me. And I knew no one. My husband started his residency and was gone a lot. And it was really lonely, really lonely. And during that time, see, a lot of stuff happened. Um, during that time, uh, we were going through the process of a autism evaluation for my oldest child, who will be eight soon, and um, went through that whole process. If anyone's been through it, you know it's long, it's questionnaires, it's hours of evaluations, it's really time-consuming, and it's, it's exhausting. And so about uh, around May he was officially diagnosed with autism and that really, I knew it was coming, but that just like put the nail in the coffin. Wow. Yeah. So I was struggling and I somehow made it through a couple more months and I was really struggling with depression and my OCD was through the roof. I um, was cleaning up to eight hours a day. I vacuum my house three times a day, which I have small children. So I have to pick up all the, you know, all the toys off the floor and then vacuum. I'd wake up at 2 a.m. with an urgency to clean our small, tiny, you know, apartment kitchen for three hours. And, uh, yeah, just things like that. Oh, gone. And thanks for being honest just with some of the examples of the OCD. It takes courage just to kind of share those things because I know one part of your brain recognizes that's not normal, logical, but I just admire you sharing that because it it's honest. 
Thanks. I still get a little bit anxious thinking about that time, but I have, I've come through. Um, so anyways, there was a Sunday and I was talking to somebody at church and, uh, they knew that I was kind of in distress and they, you know how sometimes people like say things to like push you, like to change, but it's really damaging. Yes. <laughs> and um, that happened. And then the next morning I woke up and I was suicidal. That was the first day for eight months straight that I thought about taking my own life in the ways I would do it. And then I couldn't stop crying. I just cried every day for a week. And I finally went to go see my, um, my family practice doctor. And she said it would be a good idea if I were to check myself into the hospital for emergency psych evaluation. So I did. How long Question ago? they ask at the De- um, front desk is, do you want to hurt yourself? And I had to say yes. And they took me quickly back into the back wow. rooms. How long ago was that? That was, oh gosh, two years this past October. Okay. That's helpful. So yeah, just keep, sh- this is, I admire you going to the hospital. I admire you telling our listeners about this. I admire you being honest. Because I think that you knew that if you were honest, you'd be admitted. So keep sharing your story, Jocelyn. Yeah. And um, that was a really interesting experience. Uh, I stayed in the, and I learned a lot about how people, well, how they cope and how they get into the situations they're in because they are trying to cope with some pretty severe stuff. The thing about the hospital was it was more like to, you know, take care of me. Um, I didn't quite get like cured there. You know, we tried to change my medication. Anyways, after a week I was released and my husband went through some people and found um, a therapy program for me. And uh, that therapy program is called dialectical behavioral therapy. Have you ever heard of it? I've never heard of it. Will you say it again for us and just and keep talking about it? Yeah, sure thing. Dialectical behavior therapy. So some people have heard of CBT, so cognitive behavior therapy. This is a little bit different. This, um, it has been researched and proven effective. It's, it was first, uh, thought up for, um, by Marsha Linham, Linham, who had a borderline personality disorder. So it's for people with BPD. And then as time has gone on, they have realized it's really good for PTSD sufferers and intense emotions, uh, suicidal behavior, self-harm, that kind of stuff. And so that is kind of where my healing journey started. It was a long and very painful one And it was also extremely fulfilling. So I got into this program, met my therapist. And when you are in a DBT program, each week you meet with your therapist individually for an hour. And then you also meet with the DBT group of their other clients. And we go over skills. 
And that lasts anywhere from like an hour and a half to two hours. So I had to do that each week. I had an individual and a group skills class. Um, and that was where, that was the day that she uh, diagnosed me with all these things. I was in a pretty rough state. And uh, I, it was so rough that like my brain was like fogging out. I would jumble up my words. I would, you know, lose words, like couldn't get through my head. It was when I talked, it was really hard to understand. Um, so we started that and it was pretty easy at the beginning because they easy you into it. We talked about what my issues were. And, um, we, uh, first talked about the PTSD. I, the reason it was so bad for me was if I saw a baby that would looked under two months old out in public, I would get extremely scared for that child's life. Yeah. Like they're going to get sick. They are going to get sick. And then it would turn into like anger towards the parents. Like, oh my gosh, these parents should not have their children, you know? And it doesn't help that I go to a church where babies are being born all the time. Exactly. So yeah, it was really hard. And I knew logically it, it wasn't right. You know, like, you know, not every baby is going to catch a life-threatening illness. And, uh, but PTSD is real. PTSD is real in that experience you had with your own child. So, yeah. So that was hard because then I didn't want to be near people with their young babies. Hmm. I didn't want to make the baby sick. And I was also so angry. And so those are some of the things that I, you know, had problems with. I also had, you know, was diagnosed with depression, which is where my suicidal behaviors came. I, I thought constantly about suicide all the time because I just felt like I was a burden that's very common to hear at burden. And the thing that I hate the most about, like when you're feeling suicidal, it's, you don't have hope. It's just been ripped away from you. There's no hope. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't feel the spirit. You're just so ill. It's extremely difficult to feel anything that, you know, is hopeful. Talk more about um, just that stage of feeling. Did you have a plan? Did you um, make any attempts if you want to talk about any of that? So, yes, I had plans. Um, so mine had to do with either medication or with sharp objects. And what happened is my therapist, with my permission, called my husband up and said, you know, these are her plans. And he had to go and buy a safe, a lock safe, and he had to put all the medication in the house in it and all the sharp knives. And that was both humiliating and it also helped me because I felt safer. Good. I did feel safer because it wasn't like I was being like drawn to it. Uh, he would take out the medication so I could refill it and then the medication would go back in. And that's just kind of how it went. Um, I'm glad you told your therapist about your plan. 
Um, I think yeah. listeners, I think asking others that say they're suicidal about their plan doesn't make their plan more likely to happen. I think it helps just like in Jocelyn's situation where a therapist and then her husband became aware and it was just a support system. So that that's a good part of your story. Yeah. Oh, my husband, he was really patient with me. I mean, I'm sure there are times that he wanted to change the locks on the house, but he, he stuck with me. So that's a winner. Anyway, so yeah, I love my therapist. She was very frank with me, which sometimes made me really angry. I would get really upset. I shut down and then I start talking again. And in the end, I kind of love that about her because she called me out on things. You know, like you are being extremely judgmental in this situation or you're making excuses for this reason and that reason. And that was inhibiting me being able to get better. So as time went on, before we could do a, the trauma therapy, we had to deal with my OCD. Um, pretty much, you know, when people have OCD, they have a little bit of all the categories. There's just, a, you know, one or two categories that we have that, you know, I am more intended towards. So for me, um, symmetry is really big, um, orderliness. And then I have lots and lots of intrusive thoughts, uh, which were really difficult. I, you know, in church, when they say, you know, God knows your, your thoughts and he knows what you're thinking and, you know, he's judging you on your thoughts. And that was really difficult because as somebody with OCD and I actually do have scrupulosity too. Um, I had a lot of intrusive thoughts Define it was define intrusive thoughts. Are these just help our listeners understand the definition of an intrusive thought? Yeah, sure. So intrusive is a non-judgmental word for pretty much um, thoughts that would be considered bad, violent, um, unethical, things like that. Just yeah, and. Um, so, you know, for instance, I had all through high school, I had intrusive thoughts when it came to cinder block walls painted white. Isn't that great? Yeah. And um, I'm smiling listeners because this is a great. <laughs> and, this is great. Yeah. Um, isn't it? You know, nobody knew, you know, it's easy to hide, but I would have images of like, well, I don't want to like scare anyone. Um, of like hurting people with that wall. And um, that was scary for me. I mean, I, I'm a talker now, but back in high school, childhood, I was very quiet. You know, I was, and it terrified me because I considered myself a kind, nice person. I'm thinking I'm a horrible person. I am a violent person. I can hurt these people. Even though I'm just this little timid, I shouldn't say little, I'm actually 5'11". Um, you know, this timid person who like, can't even say no to someone. And, uh, and it was really hard too, because my church building that I grew up in, it was like half of the walls were the white cinder block. And then the lower half was that like scratchy, like yeah. I always thought it like, Hey, kind of stuff yeah. that like kept it from bumping into stuff. 
And, um, and that was really difficult too. And so it's like, how do you deal with that? Well, there's easy ways to avoid it. You just look at your feet. You look at the person you're talking to. You just try to keep, you know, just you avoid it in ways. And uh, what? so we just going on. That was just one of many, many. And, you know, violent. They could be sexual. Sometimes they would be together. Um, and, talk and I was about talking to then, my therapist. Yeah, talk about this idea that in our church, we're, I don't know if it's our doctrine or just our culture or some talks here and there that says we need to control our thoughts. Um, thoughts are bad thoughts, you know, sort of this, you know, you let things come on your stage and you can sing a song and get them off your stage. But for me, that just reminded me of the thought in the first place and it never really worked for me. And the older I've gotten, the more I've just tried to let people feel okay with their thoughts and just recognize it's a lifelong process to control your thoughts and, and give yourself a lot of self-love and self-kindness, even if some really, whatever the right word is, thoughts come into your mind, that are, but they're so different than your behavior or your heart. So just help us understand how the culture can sometimes add to just your feeling of, I'm, an, I'm a terrible person. Incorrect feeling that you aren't, I didn't want to, <laughs> anyway. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, I've heard that, you know, your thoughts are being judged. And the thing with OCD is like, everyone has intrusive thoughts. You think about running your car into the tree. You think about punching your boss. The thing with OCD is sticks. And for me, it gets more and more detailed. And anyway, so with that, I was really struggling and it was really hard to be at church because of that, because the scrupulosity and then being told that you're being judged on your thoughts. And I was talking to my therapist who's um, not a member, but she is a, you know, devout Christian. And I told her, I said, you know, what do I do? I'm always being told that we're, you know, God knows our thoughts. We're going to be judged. And she did a heavy sigh and, and she said something that like changed my life. And this is what she says. She says, your thoughts are the moving chess pieces and who you are is a chess board. And it just, it blew my mind. I was like, this makes sense to me. I'm the chess board. Like I'm not changing. God knows who I am. He knows my values and the thoughts that are going through in and out of my head are not me. Like I am not going to hurt someone. And uh, I love that. That's great. I do too. (laughs) It's such, it was really good. She's uh, was helpful because uh, even though, like I said, she wasn't a member, she was Christian, a devout Christian. And she understands that there are, you know, church cultures and things that are said with good intention, but aren't the best. And I struggle with my scrupulosity too, because that like, I can't go into the temple at least I haven't tried in the last three years. I just can't go in the temple because I would think no bad thoughts, you know? And all of a sudden I've had a bad thought during the endowment and in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have just ruined this person's chance at eternal you know, salvation. Wow. I've done it. And then I would think, should I give this like back? Should I give this paper slip back with a name on it? But I was too scared to and thought, well... You know, and then I felt like huge guilt from that. And it was, so I'm, 
Yeah, it was, it's difficult because it's like church was supposed to be a healing thing, like the gospel. And it was, it was very difficult for me. I had all these disorders and sometimes we joke and we call it word vomit. I, somebody would ask me in the church hall or even at the grocery store, how are you doing today? And then just everything would explode out and they would just look so startled. And it, that was difficult because I either got two different reactions. I'm scared for you. That one was awful. I did not like that look of, I want to run away from you and I'm scared for you. And the other reaction, which was the better one was, okay, okay. You know, I hear you and I believe you can get better. Like, I believe you have the strength and I'm here to help you get through that. Um, I love you being honest with how the church can be difficult, and you haven't said anything in the doctrine that's difficult, but you've talked about the culture. I love where you talked about the temple, and you're doing proxy work for a name, and your OCD, your scrupulosity caused you to think, if I have a bad thought, then, because your heart is so good, it attacks. It attacks the things that are most important to you. You understand this, and the things that are most dear to you. So this person you're doing proxy work in the temple and how much you care about the temple and that ordinance and that person, it attacks the things that are the most important to you. And so then it's sort of like, wait a second, this is, you know, and then your scrupulosity and your OCD takes over. And I get then where you don't want to be in the temple because that can just add to your PTSD. It can remind you of these difficult experiences in your there's a natural side of you that says, I need to stay emotionally safe and I need to put my place self in places that I can heal. And if church or the temple are kind of re-triggering, then it all kind of reopens the trauma and isn't the path to healing. Even though on another side, I'm speaking for you um, a little bit, you you know, you love the church and you love the doctrine and you love the teachings, but you can have both of those things in your brain at the same time, um, if that's fair to say. No, exactly. You said it perfectly. Right. And that's, that's why uh, the dialectical behavior therapy, I'm just going to call it DBT since it's not such a long word um, has helped because dialectical technically is when two opposing things are true at the same time. Wow. Like for instance, right now I'm nervous and excited to be talking to you. And those are two opposing emotions that are true at the same time. And it's a lot of, and the DBT helped me just learn how to, um, give me a second. <laughs> yeah. So the, the therapy was really helpful. Um, I'm going to go back to my OCD. So before, while I was doing the dialect DBT, I was also doing ERP, which is, I don't know if you've heard, exposure response prevention. So we ha I had to do a lot of things that I hated and were terrified of. Um, one of the weeks I, even though I have OCD and yes, I'm a clean person, I still have my dark corners of the house. And we have a junk closet. It's where we throw all our stuff in when we come inside the house. 
And I had to leave that door open for an entire week. Wow. I could not fix it. I could not clean it. I had to walk by it. I couldn't just avert my eyes to the ground and I had to walk by it. And what happens is like at first, really taxing on me, just anxiety, anxiety. I want to do this. I need to do this to make this right, to make these feelings go away. I need to clean this closet. And then I would say about three or four days into it was when I started feeling my anxiety starting to go down. Every time I looked at the closet, it wasn't as hard. I didn't have urges of like, all I can think about is cleaning that closet. And what's so important about doing ERP when you have OCD is you want a life worth living. And OCD takes so much time out of your life, so much time out of your life. And I wanted that life worth living. I wanted to be social. I wanted to do more of my hobbies, read more books, things like that. And when you're cleaning for six to eight hours a day with that anxiety fueling it, you're exhausted, you're short with your kids and you're just not having the quality of life you could have. So we had to do so many. And I think ERP is just going to be something, I know it's going to be something that I'm going to have to do the rest of my life. And another, (laughs) another one was, uh, Oh, my poor husband. Like I said, he's a saint. Um, I have a really hard time with bodily fluids. And so different times in my life, things spike. Like I just hone in on it for some reason. I couldn't hold my husband's hand because it could get sweaty. And so my homework was to hold my hand, my husband's hands for 15 minutes every night for two weeks. And oh, it was hard because like my husband, he's understanding, he's getting it, but you can see the hurt in his eyes. Like my wife doesn't want to hold my hand and it just is sad. And, um, Great. so that, that helped our relationship a bit too, because the OCD was really affecting that part of my life. And to say OCD is probably my biggest disorder and it's the one I've had the longest, my earliest OCD memory was in first grade and I had to, my mom would put four items in my lunchbox with a napkin and I'd undo the napkin, which had the four squares. And then I would put my drink in one square, my sandwich in the other square, and then whatever else in the two other squares. And that made me feel good. At that time, I, like I said, I didn't get diagnosed with OCD until about three years ago, two, three years ago. So I've gone my whole life where some people have been like, are you OCD? And I'm like, eh, I just, I just have good habits. That's all, you know, good cleaning habits, things like that. And I also think that it's more like, I know my mom has OCD. Sorry, mom, if you're listening, um, undiagnosed. And so what I thought was normal was normal in our home you know, and that I don't think it really brought up any red flags because it was, it was like, well, of course you're doing this. You know, um, I had to learn a lot of coping skills. And that's one thing that after I started therapy that I realized I lack severely in really do lack severely in 
And we went through the skills and I learned such great things. Let me, one of the things that is called opposite action. So let's say, go on. Yeah. Opposite action. Just, I like that. Opposite action. I don't know anything about that. So share about that. This one, I feel like I got the quickest like relief from. So opposite action is you do kind of the opposite of what you want to do. I want to lay on the couch and just hide underneath the blanket. Well, opposite action. I'm just going to go walk to the mailbox, get my mail and then walk back in. I mean, it does not have to be anything big. And what happens is it does, it lifts your mood. You're not going into the state of depression and just kind of going into your shell. They say that the three most common um, like negative coping mechanism people use is drugs, alcohol, and sleep. And sleep is what I used. Sleep is how I escaped and I slept a lot. Anyway, so this opposite action, it so many ways you could do it. Another, you know, I don't want to go to my friend's house. I know I'll have a great time there and I'll feel included. I'm an extrovert. I love my friend. This is like my jam, but I don't want to go. And so I push myself. I'm going to do the opposite action. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to go. And it really does. It helps you to push through these, these emotions because it's so severe, so severe. Another thing that they taught when you have extreme emotions. So like I said, I was diagnosed with like, you know, top of the line of these disorders at the beginning. And I was in that moment and they taught me some skills on like when you're just superly, super, you have really intense emotions that is really hard to function. And there are some things you can do to help lower your emotion. So that's the great thing is we're not trying to get rid of the emotion. We are just trying to bring it to a level that you can cope through and hopefully not make decisions that you'll regret later. So like these uh, skills were splash cold water on your face you know, like that shock when you jump into like a cold pool and it's all you can think about is that cold and puts you in that survival. Yeah. So that's what it does. Intense exercise, things like that. It helps. It, it's terrible. I hate splashing my face with ice cold water. It's, and the exercise is like, who wants to exercise when you just want to lay on the couch when you just feel so comfortable just in a ball on the couch. I love those examples of just a way to sort of break the narrative and change the direction. And I love those examples. Those are, Thank you. Very yeah, complicated, I, but it's, and that's another thing too, is, you know, I love the gospel in the church and I struggle because It's like we're taught to pray and endure, read the scriptures. And those are all wonderful things, but they're not quite like coping, um, 
coping mechanisms to get through some really severe stuff. Now, enduring, yes, like that's something that has to do with hope and getting to the end. And I've actually done a lot of like research about like coping skills that people did in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And of course, they look a lot different than we do in these latter days. But some of the things really stood out to me, you know, like Jesus, he set boundaries. He did, you know, he'd want to go by himself. He wouldn't help everyone. He set boundaries. And I was this, like, I want to be a good person. God wants me to serve. And putting up boundaries has helped me so much in my life. I really recommend it to anyone, just talking it through with someone you feel safe with and talking about setting boundaries. Can you give us an example of any boundaries? Yes. So some boundaries that had to be set were how people talk to me, uh, specifically how some family members talk to me. You know, I was taught that it is a gift to be in my life, not something that is just owed, granted to you because you are my family member. And so I had to learn to use my words and say, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. Let's stop this conversation. And if you continue to talk about it, I'm going to have to leave the room or hang up the phone. And uh, I know some people might be like, oh, walking on eggshells, but it's hard because then if I didn't do that, I'd be walking on eggshells because I would be so scared to say something that would cause, you know, trauma to my, you know, self. Um, some other, I started saying no to people. I hate cooking. I do. I do it for my family, but I hate cooking. I stopped signing up for, you know, the meal drop-offs whenever somebody needed them at church. I loved, had no problem with babysitting or showing up to help clean. I could do all of those things, but it was really hard. And the other thing I learned with the boundaries too is like, there are times where you need to be served, not you serving other people. And then when you feel strong, there's going to be moments because depression, suicidal, all that stuff, it, you know, I think people who have understand that there's waves of intensity. There's like, I can function with this going on right now. And then there's the, I can't function. I cannot do anything at this moment. And I had to really give myself permission to be like, I don't have to help this person right now. But when I have that energy, when I'm in one of those, like I can function I'm going to try to push myself to help when I can. I love that. And I love Jocelyn where you said, I need to learn to let people serve me. I'm reminded of when I arrived in the mission field in England, my first companion kept trying to serve me. And I had grown up in some sort of a culture or Puritan feeling where good Latter-day Saints don't need to be served. I can do everything on my own. I can kind of it's sort of like working out your own salvation. I'll work out mine, you work out yours, but I'm not, you know, I don't need you to help me. And I realize as I've matured that letting people serve me blesses me and blessing them and is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of humility and 
and needing each other as the same human family. So I love what you said about that. Yeah. And going on about humility. Oh my gosh. Has this just been something that has just rocked me to the core and has really helped me to understand people so much better than I ever thought. Just these feelings of feeling alone and my patriarchal blessing and actually says, I'll be a friend to the friendless. Cool. Never really quite understood what that meant. You know, I got it at 16 and over the last few years, I'm like, I get it. I get it. It doesn't mean that they may not have like no friends. It's just, they might be feeling lonely in a certain aspect in their life. And I can be that person. I I'm known to open up and be vulnerable um, because I, I hate seeing people suffer. And if it means that I have to kind of say something that's, you know, might be a little personal to me, like this podcast, I will say it if it means that I can help somebody feel a little less lonely, have a friend. Talk more about any other coping skills um, that you've learned that would be helpful for our listeners. And I just admire, you know, I, I just admire you listeners and all of us that are willing to try new things and learn new things and not go to our go-to. Like a go-to for me is sometimes to go to sleep early at night. That's sort of my escape. Um, I have that similar thing sometimes, but I recognize if I'm going to sort of learn new things, I've got to develop new coping skills instead of just going to sleep early. So talk about and that takes courage. It makes us uncomfortable, but it can put us in a better place long term that we're glad at the end of the day that we've learned these coping skills, like keeping the door open to the junk closet. I love that example. Other ones you'd like to share that come to mind? Yeah. Oh, there's so many. And that's the thing is, oh, I wish people like, there's so many out there. There's so many ways to possibly cope. And yeah, going to sleep early, if I'm having a hard day. Um, I tend to watch YouTube videos. Of people cleaning, believe it or not. That's, I <laughs> it's love just so satisfying. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's two that come to mind. Uh, first one is really just educating yourself. You, you know, paying attention to your body and what's going through your mind and naming that emotion. I feel like naming that emotion is the first step on how to. I don't want to say fix it because like I said, we just want to bring it down. We just want to bring the feelings to a manageable position. This is in my therapy. That's what the plan was. And it gave me so much confidence just knowing my own emotions. It's amazing because, you know, sometimes you're brought up, you know, we've all done this. I'm a parent myself. Your kid's crying, crying, and they're saying, you know, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And I'm like, you just ate five minutes ago. I think you're tired. And it can be really disorienting when it's like, I think I'm hungry, but somebody's telling me that I'm tired instead. And that can be really difficult. And so being able to like reintroduce yourself to what emotions feel like and how they react with your body. Like when I'm anxious, I feel like there's a man standing on my chest when I'm depressed, I feel like I've just got sandbags tied around my waist. Um, and then another coping skill, I have to use this a lot, a lot. This one is, is called the stop skill. So the, uh, so, you know, S-T-O-P. So it stands for something in each of these steps. 
The S stands for stop. T, take a step back. O, observe. P, proceed mindfully, which is really good because it just don't scream out the first thing that said what comes out of your mouth or you don't do it. You stop and you give yourself a moment to observe and then mindfully, which means to be like very intentional and aware of what you do next. Are there any other coping skills that you want to share? Love those. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there's, well, I'm a big fan of meditation. There's so many apps now. I remember, so there's this uh, Christian writer, Lisa Turkhurst, and she wrote a line saying at some point in her life, she felt like she was licking the floor of hell. And that is exactly how I felt, just the lowest of low. And I found meditation to be extremely, you know, some people do it with prayer. I more so did it with the body awareness. And then it turned into, you know, these apps would just like whisper things to me as I'm trying to calm myself down. And I meditate every day. It's a short meditation for two minutes, or it could be up to 10 minutes. And when it gets really bad, I'll meditate three days or three times in one day. It's, it's really something that I think people should look into. And they even say that like the successful people, successful, like business people, they meditate. A lot of them meditate. I like that. Um, talk more. I want to go back to this other question. If you're, if you're ready to move on, it's just, Talk to people that are suicidal right now. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. They don't feel any hope. Um, they don't see any value in them. They have this incorrect belief that you mentioned that the world would be better off without them. They're a burden to everybody. Um, just this, all these thoughts coming into a suicidal path help people to talk to people about how to see value in the middle of this incredibly dark moment. Yeah, the most important thing to remember when you are severely suicidal is to try not to be alone. And if you are, then try to get whatever the things you would want to use out of your house. Um, the next thing is to remember if you are feeling suicidal, think about it. You're not always feeling severely suicidal if suicidal at all it's one of those things it's waves it's a constant wave you know you could be just fine and then be walking out the grocery store and thinking about dying and there's just hope at the end another thing that really helped me i it's really hard to see your value really really hard to see your value i don't even know if it's like possible to be honest i think the best thing is just being validated. Like this is hard. Validate yourself. This is really, really hard. Um, a question I get asked a lot too is like, how can the family member or the close friend show, you know, let their loved one know that they have value. And it's, 
it's not really like the answer I'm sure people are thinking about. Like if anyone's ever been a lifeguard, like gotten lifeguard practice training, you know about active drowning and active drowning. Um, their head can still, you know, bobbing up and out of the water. Their head can still be above. They can't really talk if they can, you know, probably not at all because they're panicking. And it is hard to think about anything else when you are actively drowning. And it is really difficult if somebody were just to come up and say, you know, you are a great swimmer. You know, what's your name? Tell me about yourself. You know, there's a step in between that you need to do to help somebody who's in a crisis. And that is in the, for the water, throwing a flotation device, going out there and grabbing them, bring them back to the shore. And my advice to those people is when their loved ones are in that heightened emotion that you need to help them bring that emotion down. Um, you know, turn on a show, a movie to watch together, talk about the issues. Um, one of my favorite things is to plan my future dream house, which is a great thing because here I am suicidal wanting to end right now, but I am now looking into the future, which is a really positive sign, by the way, it's a positive sign to be, even if it's like, you know, Oh, I just want a big bathtub and I want to be able to shop at all of the nice stores. Yeah. Sounds really materialistic. But at that time, it's showing that there's hope, that they have plans for the future. And it's good to kind of work with that. And that's, and then when the emotions get down, then, you know, you're back to the shore, then is a good time to maybe let them know how you feel about them. And another thing you can do too is just, you know, promise, have them promise you, you know, please don't hurt yourself tonight. Don't say, you know, don't hurt yourself ever, but say, please don't hurt yourself tonight. Please don't hurt yourself until I get back to you to, you know, I want to get back to you tomorrow. Uh, That's really a good segment, Jocelyn. And one of the things I've always imagined, if our older selves could talk to us in the middle of our most dark moments, our older self being two years or five years older, they would give us the hope that we lack in that moment. So talk to you're roughly two, two and a half years away from that inpatient um, psych unit, if I'm using the right vocabulary, or talk, why don't you just talk to your younger self, um, what you would say to your younger self in your very darkest moments? Oh, gosh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I once asked, how do you know if God is giving you a miracle, like at that time? And a man in the back of the classroom said, you don't, you don't until later on, you notice it's a miracle later on most of the time. So first off, I'd say you are going to get amazing help. You're going to meet amazing people with struggles like you, you are going to learn so much about people's suffering and why they suffer and why they do what they do. And it's going to cause you to have empathy and to just want to hold them. I also, the ERP, 
I mean, I was having to do things that scared me. And ERP makes people brave. And I have become a brave person. I like, I feel brave enough just to say that right now. I have tried new things that I've always wanted to try, but were terrifying. I started boxing. That was great, you know, and I have little other things that, you know, I wanted to do, but I was always scared to do. But with my, with the knowledge I had learned through that training and that exposure, I was able to do things that I've always wanted to do, just meet dreams or try new things, go to new places. And I guess the biggest thing is, you know, it's hard to see life will get better. I know when people say that to you in the middle of it, it is really hard to believe it. It does get better. Life will always have its up and downs. You will always have trials and you will always have wonderful moments and you can prepare yourself to be able to handle those hard moments and you will be able to handle those hard moments. I love that. And um, I'm going to turn it back to you for some concluding comments, but just some comments. There's a couple talks that I'm sure Jocelyn knows that are two of my favorite talks, just talking about emotional health. Um, One is from Sister Alberto. She talked about the suicide of her father. And first time probably that word is sort of someone talked in general conference about the suicide of a loved one. And she has talked about mental illness um, in a very positive, helpful way. It's not a spiritual weakness. We need Jesus and a therapist, as Jocelyn is sharing. And we can't solve mental illness through prayer and more scripture study, more temple attendance. It's a different path to healing as Jocelyn is sharing. And then, of course, Elder Holland's Like a Broken Vessel, where he opened up about his own emotional illness. And I think we all know Elder Holland doesn't have a spiritual weakness, but he at times, like many of us, have emotional challenges. I'm going to read a longer quote that I haven't read for a while on this podcast. It's sort of about the idea of we heal each other by being honest in our vulnerabilities That doesn't mean we tell everybody all the time, but what Jocelyn's doing and what she's done is often the path to help others and heal others, and I think is part of Jocelyn's mission. So this is from Henry Norwin, a Catholic priest, and he says, quote, over the last few years, I've been becoming increasingly aware that healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weakness. And I don't mean emotional illness as a weakness, listeners. But that's the word he uses. Now I back this quote. Mostly we're afraid of our weaknesses, that we hide them at all costs and make them unavailable to others, but often to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living double lives, even against our own desires. One life in which we present ourselves to the world, to ourselves, and to God as the person who is in control. And another life in which we feel insecure, doubtful, confused, anxious, and totally out of control. The split between these two lives can cause a lot of suffering. I've become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming this great chasm between these two lives. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship community became possible to the degree I'm able to share. He uses the word weakness. I don't really like that word in this situation with others. Um, Often I become aware of the fact that in sharing of my weaknesses with others, the real depths of my human brokenness Weakness and sinfulness start to reveal themselves to me, not as a source of a despair, but as a source of hope. 
As long as I try to convince others of my independence, a lot of my energy is invested in building up my own false self. But once I am able to truly confess my profound dependence on others and on God, and I would say others, including therapists, I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. Um, Another quote I read a little more frequently is really what Jocelyn is doing. It's from the same Catholic priest, Henry Norum, but he talks about the wounded healer and a minister service, and Jocelyn's a minister now, we all are to some extent, will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of the desert by someone who's been there, who's never been there. But I love that because you know all these deserts. You have, (laughs) in 58 minutes, talked, you know, you could probably do a whole hour on depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD. You've got an autistic child. You nearly lost a child. Um, So you have been in some really brutal deserts and maybe something we haven't talked about in the podcast, but... And you would love maybe none of that to have been part of your life. I'm sure if I'd interviewed at age 12, you would have hoped none of that would have been part of your life. And we present a pretty rosy picture at age 12 and 14 for what our lives can be. And often the reality lives are very different. But sometimes as we become at peace with the reality of our different experiences, we recognize we become the wounded healers. And we recognize that these brutal experiences lead to some of our biggest paydays where we just get it for other people. And we can go where they need to go because we know that world and we can lead them out in a way that is healing to us and healing to them. And that's part of your mortal mission. It's, I think there'll be, if I interview every 10 years, I think the lessons you're learning now will make you a better mother and a better wife and a better person, the different communities you're in, and will lead to some of your great paydays. But it's been really painful. And it's all been outside of your control. It's not like you did something to cause this. If you had just been a little more faithful and whatever, this is just real life that happened without you choosing to have this happen or, or making bad choices that cause this to come into your life. It's just came into your life because of mortality is mortality. So I'll turn it back to you for any closing comments or thoughts, Jocelyn. That was beautiful what you said. I really, and I know those two talks well. I'll bet you did. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it was brutal. And I still, it. there are days where it just seems to all come back and it's brutal. And gosh, yeah, I remember thinking, I don't want to be in the refiner's fire. Why does everyone think this is so great to be in the refiner's fire? I don't want to become stronger. I'm fine. Just let me be innocent and naive. But my life has become so much richer because of my trials and the connections I make with people, with my family members, with those who are suffering. I love my autistic mamas out there. I'm with you. Great. It's just, it's been a journey and I know it's not going to be the end of it. And that scares me a little bit. But like I said, I also have this, like, I'm brave. I have courage. I can deal with it. I know I'll be able to deal with it. I love that you took those labels on. You may not have felt that way, but I love you took the brave and the courageous label. There's something culturally, sometimes we don't say that about ourselves, but 
you deserve those labels and those labels are true and they reflect you. And I wish our listeners could see you right now because you're just full of light and goodness and, and the hope that you lacked and the hope that some of our listeners have lacked. Um, and it's really a hard time right now. We're recording this in late January and COVID's still very part of our lives. Um, I just think our older selves, if they could come back and hug us right now, um, would fill us with hope for those of you that don't feel hope. And they would encourage us to stay alive and use some of the things that Jocelyn is sharing. So we'll sign off. This is Richard Osler, your host, and Jocelyn Fowler, our guest, signing off together from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.